At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 494th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who loves foraging and harvesting edible plants. We're talking with Kelly Athena about wild desert cuisine. Kelly grew up loving nature in Northern California and moved to Phoenix in 1986. She holds a master's degree in music and photography and is a master gardener of Maricopa County. She was named Arizona Photographer of the Year in 2000 and especially enjoys photographing nature. Five years ago, she began hosting plant walks to help people learn to identify and sustainably harvest wild plants. Then she was dubbed... Cactus Kelly. Kelly is especially interested in desert bean trees such as the Palo Verde, Mesquite, and Ironwood trees, as well as edible cacti and weeds. She harvests wild desert cuisine for restaurants and chefs in the area, makes prickly pear juice and powder, and teaches desert foraging in schools and at the Desert Botanical Garden. Welcome to the show today, Kelly. Are you ready to rock desert edibles? Thank you. Yes, let's do it. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Well, it all started probably when my dad gave me a wild plant and animal identification book when I was age 10. And it helped me identify and appreciate all the flowers, trees, and birds in my yard. And I got to know their habits and got to know what they looked like at different stages of life and got to know the Native American uses for the plants. And my dad's excitement about nature just spilled over into me. He, he got so excited when the first wildflowers would pop up in spring. He'd go, there's the Johnny Jump Ups. And I sat on his knee many times at dusk and waited for the owl to swoop out of the oak tree to go hunting. Wow. There she goes, he'd say, yeah. And it was great. So I think educating people and providing chefs with our local food plants just grew out of this passion for nature. Wow. So you're actually harvesting desert edibles, so wildcrafting desert edibles to to sell to chefs. Yes, that's right. Tell me about that. I concentrate mostly on the bean trees and the prickly pear because there are a lot of those around. Oh, yeah. And our state tree, for instance, the green Palo Verde that has green bark, green branches and all, it produces a bean that tastes... I think better than soy edamame, so I call it desert edamame, Uh and that's one of the things that I provide to chefs and restaurants. Awesome, and and how did you come to getting to a place where you were actually harvesting and selling to chefs? Because that's, you know, a lot of our listeners are in jobs that they don't necessarily love and would love to, you know, branch out and go do something like this. So how did you go through that process of getting there? Well, I'm still in the process of it, really. It was a hobby for years, 
And then I thought, nobody's selling these. Everybody's ignoring and just dismissive of the local food. And I thought, uh, why not start offering it for sale? And so instead of just picking 10 pounds, I got a couple extra freezers and I picked like 153 pounds this year that are stored right now. Of? And of Palo Verde beans. Oh, wow. And then the mesquite harvest got another 50 pounds of those. And this year there was no ironwood harvest, so I couldn't get those. So Palo Verde beans, are you just harvesting them and freezing them the way they are? Or do you shell them? I freeze them the way they are. It just takes too much time to shell them. And plus, one of the two main types of Palo Verde, the yellow Palo Verde or Foothills Palo Verde, it can be eaten just like desert edamame. So you can put it right in your mouth and tease the beans out with your teeth. And so you want the pod on it. Mm-hmm. It can be a side dish and just a little bit of salt and oil or even raw. It tastes really good. Just like edamame. Just like edamame. Yeah. Wow. And the other type of Palo Verde, which is called blue Palo Verde, it has a little different pods and its pods are bitter, but the beans are just as sweet as the yellow Palo Verde. So those you just boil and then pop out the seeds. And I've got restaurants using those to make hummus and veggie burgers, stir fries, things like that. Wow. And so the restaurants are into this. Yes, some are. I, I wish a lot more were. So I'm, I'm slowly getting the word out and hoping a lot more will, will join us. Yeah. How did you go about developing the process of selling to chefs? Because I know it, it can be a little bit daunting when you first get into something like this. So what did that process look like? Yes, it was a little daunting. But I was introduced to Tamara Stanger of Cotton and Copper Restaurant in Tempe, And I knew she was already into foraging and the wild foods. And so I offered to provide different foraged foods for her, for her special Equinox dinners and so on. And she was game for that. And then I decided, well, on Instagram, I'm just going to befriend chefs and message them about, Uh, hey, would you like to learn about the wild foods we have? Yeah. Some of them respond and... So Danielle Leonia of the Breadfruit and Rum Bar and Nick LaRosa of the Nook Kitchen, they're both into it. I'm so happy. It, it really inspires me when, when others see the value in these wild foods as well. Oh, yeah. That's... And being hyper-local. Yeah. That's got to just tickle you. It's just like, yes! Yes. That's right. <laughs> so in this process of you going from having it you know, be a hobby, basically, to having it be a business... You're doing a lot of teaching, some walkabouts. I noticed on your website there were some videos of you teaching. Have there, is, was there a moment yes. that something happened with somebody you were teaching and it was like, oh, yes, this is the reason that I'm doing this? Oh, I've had several of those, I think. One thing is whenever I tell people about the Palo Verde bean and we're showing that on a walk and people just say, I had no idea. I've lived in Arizona most of my life, and no one has once told me that this bean is edible. And then they taste it, if it's in May, when it's tasting just like a pea out of the garden, Mm -hmm. really good. And they go, this is incredible. How were we not told this in school? So that was a moment. And that probably happens a lot, right? It does happen a lot. And, And with the mesquite beans, when people taste 
the mesquite flower or a bean, their eyes just light up and their eyebrows go up in surprise and they say, wow, this is sweet. One boy said, this tastes like the powder at the bottom of a Cheerios box. (laughs) And another little boy said, this is too sweet for me. So it's like candy. Yeah. Well, Heidi and I make uh, cookies from mesquite flour and we use the mesquite flour as the sweetener. We don't put sugar in them. Yes, I do the same. Which is really cool. Yeah. So where is the best place to harvest wild edibles? Well, I think the best place to harvest them is in your own yard. If you've got the trees and the bushes and the weeds that are edible, that way you don't have to go out in the wilderness, wonder if it's legal or not, and possibly take some away from wildlife or from reseeding. Uh-huh. So there's, pl- there's plenty out there. I think the second best place is your neighbor's yard. Uh, nice. I knock on their door and ask permission, and they're almost always glad to get that potential litter out of the yard. Yeah. I always tell them, it's not litter, it's lunch. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Uh, I go out Saturday mornings to garage sale most every week, and I scout for edibles the whole time. And oftentimes I'll find people with barrel cactus in their front yard with the little yellow pineapple fruits that are filled with delicious seeds or somebody with bean trees. And I'll ask them, could I please take some of these? And this is how I make friends. (laughs) Yeah, cool. What, what I've often done is if I do find something in somebody's yard, I process it and then I take them back some of it to, so that they yes. can make that connection. Yes, I like to do that too. And then there's also the BLM land, the Bureau of Land Management land, where it is legal to take some beans and so on, even saguaro fruits mm-hmm. in many places. Well, and that would I guess that would BLM land would be nationally, anywhere in the country that you could go harvest them there. Yes. Yes, that's right. So there's some big areas with, with desert foods nearby yeah. that are on BLM land. Well, and if you're not in the desert, you could also check out, you know, what kind of edibles might be in the, you know, on the BLM land near you. Because I know that people go up north in northern Arizona and they harvest mushrooms. Yes, yes. It's very popular. Those are the bean trees. Let's talk about prickly pears. Tell me about prickly pears. Well, prickly pears are just so cool because... There's not many plants where you can get both a fruit and a vegetable off the same plant. Ooh, tell me and about that. Yeah, we've got the pads, which are those big, flat, round things that look like Mickey Mouse ears, and uh-huh. they're connected and keep growing out of each other. And those are called nopales in Spanish, and those are delicious. You just have to get the glockids off, which are these tiny fishhook spines that can get into your skin and fester for weeks, so you really have to keep away from them and rinse those off and scrape them off, and then you can fry them up in a little coconut oil and, and uh, salt, and they're delicious. Wow. You know, and, I've, and, I've lived in Arizona for 50, uh, 53 years now, and I have mm. never eaten a nopale. Oh. I've eaten, I've eaten prickly pears, but not the nopales. Oh, you've got to come over to lunch sometime. There you go. I'm in. And, and get it into more restaurants. If they would serve it, then... It would be available to people. Yeah. That'd be great. So I've been harvesting. I talked to uh, Peggy Sorensen recently on the podcast, and we talked prickly pears, and I asked her for her favorite method of processing them because of the glockids. The glockids are little little thorns or little stickers that are on them that you don't want to get on your hands. I asked her, and I'm going to ask you what your favorite way of processing them is to get past the glockids. 
My favorite way to get the fruits is to use tongs, and I use uh, disposable gloves, three pairs of disposable gloves, to try to not get them in my hands. Uh Because if you use any gloves, they're ruined with the glockets. And then I put them in a milk crate-type plastic box with openings, and then I put it under the hose and just spray the heck out of them. And that gets most of them gone. And then they're almost like eyelashes. They can still get you, so keep those gloves on. But And then I process it through a Breville juicer. Oh. And that separates the, the seeds and the pulp out from the juice. And I found that, for me, to work better than the freezing method where you freeze it in a pillowcase and then squeeze out the juice. Or you could also put them in a food processor blender, and then you have to put it through sieves a few times to filter it. Yeah. But not many juicers can handle this. Oh, right. It's, exactly. My, my juicer, I have three of them, and one will break down, and then it will work again in an hour. So I have to have backups. Yeah, no kidding. I noticed in your bio, you said that you made prickly pear juice, which I've made before because I make juice into jams and jellies and then, you know, add it as to margaritas and stuff like that. But it also says right. that you make prickly pear powder. Tell me about that. Yes, I just thought that up less than a year ago. I figured out how to dry the fruits and then separate the seeds out and the skin and put it in a grinder and grind it up really fine. And and then I add I usually add cinnamon sugar to it and then it makes a great margarita rim. Oh. And, and one ounce of it will rim one hundred margaritas. So oh, it goes wow. a long ways. And it and it tastes good and it looks so festive and it just says Southwest. And not many people are picking up on this yet, so I'm hoping it will get more popular. I see online there's somebody in South Korea is making it, but I don't see anybody else in the world making it. Well, just go do it. Yeah, I'm just doing it. (laughs) Yeah, that that would be an awesome thing to sell to restaurants. Yes, I'm selling some to Zach's Chocolate right now, and they're mixing it with white chocolate for the inside of a chocolate and making it that bright magenta color. Oh, yes. Fabulous mentors and people that have inspired you, what experiences have you had around that? Yes, it's kind of hard to find mentors, but I have found some. Just looking online, I found Carolyn Neathammer, who has been into this foraging for many years, has several books, and her blog called Savor the Southwest gives recipes and foraging tips. And then I've taken plant walks with John Slattery of Tucson. In fact, he was the first one to give me a bite of saguaro fruit. And that was kind of an epic moment because it tasted as good as chocolate. Oh, better. Yeah. So that was something. And then Peter Bigfoot of the Superstition Mountains, done some classes with him. He was most well known for doing an 85-mile walk in 15 days through the desert with no food or water back in 1976. And he just foraged along the way. So he's a real pioneer. Wow. And then there's Mark Lewis of the Scottsdale Old Town Market. He's an encyclopedia of knowledge. And so I've read every book he recommended. Nice. And then I've, everything... actually, I've actually had Mark on the podcast. Yes, I, I listened to that one. It was really good. Yeah. That's great. And as far as prickly pear juicing, I learned a lot from Natalie McGee, who's the owner of Arizona Cactus Ranch south of Tucson. She operates the largest prickly pear juice company in Arizona. 
and is a wealth of knowledge. There's actually somebody that does that here in Arizona. Yes, there is. She's been doing it about 30 years, I think. And she makes unsweetened juice so that it's good for people with diabetes and has all the health benefits without adding sugar like a lot of companies do. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's and, a thing. I know that with uh, mesquite beans, they're low glycemic. So they're, the mesquite flour is good for people with diabetes and other health issues. So it sounds like yeah. the prickly pears are as well. They are as well. And the other two bean trees are as well. So nice. They've got a glycemic index of somewhere around 29, whereas corn is more around 59. So it's a slower digestive process and helps with the insulin and the whole process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking at our food system and the way the food system is set up, we're, we've got some challenges. In fact, I've been, I've been preaching yeah. about this for 40 years on how we need to eat differently on the planet. And Mark Lewis, I think he told me that there are over 2,000 desert edibles. I believe there's 2,000 in Arizona and at least 400 in the Sonoran Desert wow. that I know of, and yeah. there may be more. Wow, that's amazing. And how do you see this going into the future impacting how we save water, that we can eat locally, maybe even the whole notion of climate change? How do we... You know, how can we address that? Yes, these plants fit right into it. For instance, the prickly pear only needs water maybe once every two weeks. And Mexico is way ahead of us on this. They produce 400,000 tons of prickly pears every year. What? And ex yes, and export a lot of it. And wow. it's also a really good fodder for cattle, and cattle love it. So just think if we use that as our fodder in Arizona instead of alfalfa, which is the number one use of Colorado River water, mm -hmm. that, that would change us dramatically. And what if we depended on trees, which are always there, instead of short crops that are just there for a few months and, and are water intensive? So if, if we relied on the mesquite tree and the Palo Verde bean for a lot of our food, that would make a huge difference. Yeah. One, well, just really looking, looking around us. I'm a huge proponent of if you're going to plant something, make sure it's edible. And yes, there is so much to eat wherever you are. I mean, you know, we live in the desert, but wherever you are, what's there to eat there that you can go harvest? That's right. And I even asked my HOA, my homeowners association, if it was okay if I harvested off of the trees in the green belt. And they go, sure, crazy bean lady, go do that. <laughs> So I'm out there harvesting desert willow flowers and ironwood beans and different different things. So you can ask your HOA if it's okay, and they'll they'll probably say they'll probably okay. say yes. That'll help us exactly. I I do yeah. a yoga class with my sweetie Heidi, and I was mm -hmm. I was there. It's at a community center in an HOA, and I was there recently, and I was looking out over the uh, desert landscape out the window, and I saw these three big prickly pear cacti bushes things out there, and and there's easily 100 pounds on each one of them. They're huge. Mm, so, wow. I, so I actually started the process of asking the HOA if I can go harvest them. Great. Yeah. That's what we could do. And if we did curb cuts like they do in Tucson, where the water would go into our yards, we could have 400 bean trees per mile of road and have a lot more food for us. But people just think of plants as ornamental and trimming them into Disneyland-type balls and squares and and don't think about the natural beauty of the plants and yeah. 
what they can do for us. Exactly. Well, and you know, that's the, that's our, that's our human condition of having, having things in our space that we control and don't look to see what there is that it can contribute to us. Right. And we just go to the grocery store and get things that are trucked in 1,600 miles. The average thing is trucked in, tomatoes, oranges even, and we could be getting hyper-local stuff that's growing right here. Yeah. I run the, you know, my fruit tree education program, and occasionally somebody will give me a hard time about what the heck are you planting high water use fruit trees in the desert for? And first of all, there's systems that we put in place to help people get them watered so that they aren't so high water. But when you sit back and look at the environmental impact of shipping anything for 1600 miles, which by the way, is the average that food travels, it just makes a ton of sense to grow it locally. No, really, um, almost no matter how much water it takes, within reason, of course. It does. So you can wild harvest some of your food, then you can plant some of your own food. If you can't figure that out, go to a community garden nearby that is free and will help you learn how to garden, and you can share their food. And then go to the farmer's markets where you're supporting local farmers. So you can do those four things before going to a grocery store. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Well, one failure that comes to mind is one day I was out harvesting Palo Verde beans, and I got about 10 pounds, and I was so excited, and I got them into the plastic tarp and into my car, but then I was so tired and hot when I got home, I forgot to spread them out and dry them out, and the next day they were moldy, and I had to put them in the compost, so... I failed to plan for the whole process. You, you have to plan for the whole thing, not just the fun part, which is out picking them, touching the tree, being outdoors, but also picking the twigs and leaves out and finding containers and where you're going to store them. Yeah. Well, and that really yeah. goes to making sure that you're prepared when you have a harvest and that you have all the right tools. You said you are, you have a couple of freezers and you know making sure that you know what you're going to need to do when the stuff arrives. I don't travel in March, April, May, and June because of the amazing amount of harvesting that we do during that period of time. I can't be gone because of what's here. That's great. I feel the same way. I usually don't like to go out of town at that time. Yeah, because there's so much we can, you know, can harvest, whether it's wild harvesting or grow our own. It's here. It's time to go. That's right. What do you consider your biggest success? Connecting people to mm. nature and, and seeing that light in their eyes is, is one of the biggest successes. And then on a deeper level, even just accepting this moment as a friend, to me, is the meaning of success. And instead of that it's an enemy or that it's just a stepping stone to something in the future, mm-hmm. but choosing a grateful attitude moment by moment, because if we're not grateful, we're suffering and we're making those around us suffer. And so that's kind of the attitude underlying the whole foraging thing. And one of the successes was probably the first time I saw that bright magenta colored prickly pear juice flowing out of my juicer and I drank some (laughs) and I'd actually done it. And it was like, wow. Yeah. So what drives you? I was raised on Pop-Tarts, fish sticks and (laughs) Kool-Aid. And 
what drives me partly is wanting people to get connected with real food and real value in life, helping people to connect with nature and to, you know, assist people in doing that and showing them if one person can do it, the next can do it. It helps us all on so many levels. So it's just that passion for connecting people with nature, I think, that drives me. Yeah, and I can't tell you how many people I talk to that are doing what they do today because they were brought up on Pop-Tarts and TV dinners and not great food from the 70s and 80s. Right. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, one of the main books that's helped me is The Food Plants for the Sonoran Desert by Wendy Hodgson. It's the most comprehensive source and guide for the ethnobotany of plants in the Sonoran Desert, I think. Oh my gosh, I'm going to stop you here real quick. Literally, I'm sitting in my office at my house, and that is one of the, I'm looking at that book right now. Great. It's an amazing book. Yes, it is just so good. I've read it and reread it to remind myself of all the way the local tribes used everything and how their lives centered around the plants. Even their seasons were all named after plants or weather, and it's incredible. Yeah, well, then, and, you know, back then, when there wasn't corporate agriculture, when they were foraging, and that's what they had. That's the way they only, you know, the only way they had to feed themselves. So right. they had to be paying attention to it. And the other book, you said you had two books, oh, I remember. The other book is one that just keeps me on balance, I think, inside, and that is Maximum Self-Esteem Ooh. by Jerry Minchinton. And it just reminds me of, hey, we've all got the same worth. There's no one to look up to or look down to. We're all equal in value and just so many details about that. So I read that for a little boost in the morning usually. Oh, nice. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I would say keep compassion and curiosity as your two pillars in life. If you've got compassion for yourself and nature and a sense of wonder, then that's what I look for in friends. Those two attributes. Yeah, really do a lot and find people with those attitudes who, who are plant guides, go out with them, learn how to harvest the food. And then once you're sure of the identification, don't be afraid to go out by yourself and do it. Because there's this amazing amount of abundance out there. That's the thing that, there is. that's the thing that blows me away is when I look at the prickly pears the other day that I told you about hundreds of pounds yeah. of them just that are going to, you know, fall off and get eaten by animals and rot on the ground. Right, right. It's amazing. So go out and harvest the abundance that lives in your life. Yes, yes. And there's something about recognizing the abundance around us that you then recognize the abundance within yourself and you value yourself more. Yeah. Well, I've said for years that that I believe the only place that lack lives, you know, not having enough, is between our ears. Because when I look at the abundance that comes out of nature in my yard, it's, it's endless. Yes. Yes, you're right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Kelly. Well, thank you very much for having me, Greg. How can our listeners find you? Well, they can go to my website, kellyathena.com. And from there, they can sign up for the newsletter if they want to get recipes and foraging tips. And I'm also on Facebook as Arizona Foraging with Cactus Kelly. I'm on Instagram as Kelly Athena. And my email is info at kellyathena.com so they can get a hold of me a lot of ways perfect and i just as a side note 
you and I actually first met about, I'm going to say about 15 years ago when you took photographs of me. I was doing an event out in Scottsdale and you, t- you took some photos of me that still are actually on my Facebook page. Yes, that was fun. You were speaking on how to save water and all, all these principles we've been talking about today. Yeah. <laughs> never, never ending with me, man. Never ending with me, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah, that's, that's great. For sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today again, Kelly. I greatly appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Cactus Kelly. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.